Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. everybody. Uh, thanks again for worshiping with us today. Again, if you don't know me, my name is Colton Tatham, and I'm Journey Bible Church's West Campus pastor. Uh, in this sermon, we're going to be continuing our series in Ephesians. This is the third part of our series, and we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Uh, if you remember back to our first two sermons, uh, we observed how Paul's letter to the Ephesians contains two major sections connected by a therefore in Ephesians 4.1. The first section, chapters 1 through 3, contains doctrinal revelations of God informing our identity as the church. Therefore, the second section, that's chapters 4 through 6, contains practical instruction from God informing our behavior as the church. From a mountaintop perspective, we can see the letter of Ephesians is structured in this way. Doctrine, therefore practice. Identity, therefore behavior. Or God's story, therefore our story. In addition to Paul's introductory address in Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, chapter 1 is about the reality of the Christian life which we see flowing from something called the Trinitarian formula. Now this term, the Trinitarian formula, refers to the way Paul describes the work in person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in close succession in his writings. Breaking down chapter 1, first we read about the Father's will in verses 3 through 6. His will was that he chose us or elected us for adoption as saints before creation and eternity passed. Then we see the Son's work in verses 7 through 12. This is what we're going to unpack today. The Son is presently working to redeem those who hope in him and trust in him for forgiveness. Finally, we can observe the Spirit's witness in verses 13 through 14 that we'll look at next week. Uh, The Spirit is witnessing to a future inheritance that all those united in Christ can look forward to receiving. So again, in chapter 1, we are introduced to the Father's will, the Son's work, and the Spirit's witness. The close succession of these three persons is called the Trinitarian formula. And we're actually going to see this pattern uh, later on in Ephesians. So as we're working through this letter, be sure to keep an eye out for it. In our last sermon, we saw that the Father's will is to bless the elect so that the elect can bless him. In other words, 
the Father willed that Christians would be blessed to bless before the foundation of the earth. This means that as followers of Jesus, we are blessed to bless because we have been chosen and adopted by God. We are blessed to be a blessing to God, and we are blessed to be a blessing to others. When we come to the next section of chapter 1, we move from the Father's will into the Son's work. Although there's a lot that we could say in these verses, I want us to focus on three works that God the Son is actively involved in according to these verses. Now, the Son is obviously involved in much more, but we're going to look at the three that are mentioned here in this text. So if you have your Bibles or your bulletins, open up to Ephesians 1, 7 through 12, which Mark read for us. We're going to read these verses again, and as we do, See if you can identify the Son's threefold work. Follow along as I read Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." Now, after reading this, one of the most difficult parts is that we have a pronoun problem. We have a pronoun problem in the English. As we read these verses, we have to determine when the pronouns, that's he, his, him, we have to determine when those pronouns are referring to God the Father and when they refer to God the Son. If we don't make that distinction, this text kind of becomes ambiguous and confusing. The previous verses in the original language do give us some clues, but there's also something else that can help us as English readers. A phrase that can be very easy to glance over and miss in these verses is the phrase, in him or in Christ. This short phrase is used countless times in Paul's writings to almost exclusively refer to God the Son. Continuing right where verse 6 left off, verses 7 through 12 refer to in Christ, in him, five times. This is an easy detail to miss, but it's very significant. It tells us that this section is overtly Christological. It's, it's about Christ. It's all about God the Son. Each of these in him phrases aren't referring to God the Father, nor are they referring to God the Spirit. All five of them are specifically referring to God the Son. So let's look at these one at a time in relation to the Son's work. Let's see if you can get the threefold work of Christ correct. So here's, where, here's what we're going to do. Look there at verse 7. That's the first in him. Verse 7 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness 
of our trespasses. In Christ, in Jesus, in the Son, in the Beloved, from verse 6, we have redemption and forgiveness for trespassers. So the Son's first work in these verses is redemption. The Son redeems. The second and third in him is referenced in verses 9 and 10. Here we see that the Son's second work is to reveal. The Son is making known the will of the Father, the mystery of the will of the Father. If we were to rearrange these phrases to make more sense of what's being said, we could say, God the Father has chosen the Son to reveal to us, to make known to us, the mystery of his will. And what is the Father's will? Well, these verses refer to more than election, adoption, and blessing, like we saw from the previous three verses. Here we see that the Father's will is to do what? Unite, unite all things in Christ. The Father has a plan for the fullness of time, and his plan is to unite everything in God the Son. So when it comes to the actual work of the Son, we're told, first, the Son redeems the trespasser, second, the Son reveals the mystery, and thirdly, the Son retrieves the reward. In verse 11, we find the fourth in him. Verse 11 says, in him, in the Son, we have obtained an inheritance. What we're going to see a little later in this message is that in the Greek, this phrase actually has two meanings that are really hard to get in the English. The, the first meaning is kind of what we see here. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. But a second way that this can be understood is that we have become the inheritance in Christ. To say that we have become an inheritance is to say that we have actually become God's reward. The Son has done the work and is doing the work to retrieve us as his treasured possession. So the first four in him phrases help us to identify the three works of God the Son. He redeems, he reveals, and he retrieves. Yet there is one more in him in verse 12. This is the fifth and final in him phrase in this section. And I like to think that verse 12 is the culmination of all the son's work. The son redeems, the son reveals, the son retrieves. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That is the father's glory. So the result of the Son's threefold work is that those who hope in the Son would praise the Father. The end of verse 12 here should remind us of what we read last week in verse 6 in the previous section because it ends in a very similar way. And what this means is that whether it is the Father's will or it's the Son's work, God longs for his people to respond to his grace and his glory in worship. Now, I hope that surveying these verses has helped you to recognize that threefold work of the Son here, as well as our response as adopted sons and daughters who have put our hope in God. Now that we've kind of navigated through the surface of the text, 
Let's look at the son's work and the church's response in greater detail. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're going to go next in the message. We're going to work through these verses again in more detail, which tell us, again, number one, the son redeems the trespasser. Number two, the son reveals the mystery. Number three, the son retrieves the reward. And the son works all of this out so that we would respond in hope and worship. Again, the son redeems, reveals, and retrieves so that we would hope in the son and worship the father. So let's look at verses 7 through 8 again. Here we see the son's first work, the son redeems the trespasser. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In the first work is, if the first work is redemption, what is redemption exactly? Well, originally, redemption was more of a financial term than it was a spiritual term. Back in the first century Roman world, to redeem someone meant buying back someone. It meant buying back a slave or a captive or making a payment for a prisoner. Historically, if your nation's soldiers or dignitaries were captured by enemy forces, the enemy didn't always execute them. That that really wasn't the most profitable use of those you captured. Instead, it was more profitable for the enemy to put them to work as slaves or to imprison them and then hold them as a ransom. If a ruler wanted to get his people back safely, he would need to redeem them. He would need to pay their ransom price. Whenever redemption happens, there is a person who redeems, a person or people who need pardoned, and a price that needs paid. Again, there's the person of redemption, the pardoned of redemption, and the price of redemption. Unless all three of these are satisfied, redemption cannot happen. And in Ephesians 1.7, we see references to all three of these. Immediately, the in him phrase reveals to us who the person of redemption is. It is the Father's beloved Son, back from verse 6. God the Son is the person paying the price to pardon those needing redemption. It's important that we recognize that Jesus is, in fact, God's beloved Son. Jesus and the Son are one and the same. Jesus was not some sort of arbitrary redeemer that God just decided to choose. And Jesus wasn't some extraordinary holy man that, like, obtained sonship one day. Jesus wasn't Disney's Hercules completing a bunch of trials with Danny DeVito to become a god. That's, that's not who Jesus is. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is and will always be the Son of God. He was with the Father and with the Spirit from before creation. And he took on humanity not just to become the person of redemption, but as we'll see, to pay the price of redemption too. So who are the pardoned then? Who are the ones that have been captured 
enslaved and imprisoned by the enemy and now need to be bought back by Jesus. Well, the pardoned are described as human trespassers. We are the pardoned. Verse 7 tells us that we are the ones who are receiving redemption and we are the ones whose trespasses are being forgiven. Now, trespasses is an interesting word. The word here is not sin, it's trespass. Uh, When I think of trespasses, I can't help but think of somebody who's a trespasser. Like, you know, a secret government facility that's out there and it's got a no trespassing sign like at Area 51 and yet people try to, you know, jump the fence anyways. Or like an old man who's yelling at kids to get off his property. Uh, In my mind, trespassing has to deal with going where property laws tell you that you're not allowed to go. And it turns out in Greek that trespasser is a pretty specific term as well. It's got a little bit of a different meaning, though. A trespasser is someone who specifically violates another person's rights. That means a trespass is more than just a general sin or an act of wrongdoing or missing the mark. A trespass isn't just breaking the law. And you can't really trespass against yourself. You have to trespass against someone else. A trespasser is someone who commits a moral violation against another person. And human trespassers from the Bible are those that have harmed others in this way and those who have rebelled against God. So this is kind of a more significant, stronger word in some ways than just sin. God's Word views the entire human race as trespassers because we have all ultimately trespassed against God in our words and deeds, our thoughts and feelings, and especially when it comes to God in our loyalty and devotion to God. This is the great problem of the human condition, and it is the problem that we cannot fix ourselves. You see, we have been cast away from God's presence. We have been exiled from the Garden of Eden and exiled into the fallen kingdoms of earth and enslaved and imprisoned by enemies like death. With this in mind, redemption is very strange. It is a very strange thing. Why would God redeem people who have trespassed against him. It seems strange. It seems strange that God would redeem those who willfully violate their devotion to him, his moral laws, and defile his holy presence. But he does it anyways. As verse 6 and verse 12 remind us, God is not like us. His gracious forgiveness to sinners results in some way in his greater glory. So if the Son is the person of redemption and we are the pardoned of redemption, what is the price of redemption? Well, remember that redemption is a financial term. There is a cost to freeing those who God has chosen to pardon. In this case, The price is blood and grace. The price is incarnate blood and rich grace. 
No amount of money nor merit can ransom a trespasser. Only blood and grace. As we can see in this verse, the person of redemption is the only one who can pay the price of redemption. This is why the Bible tells us Jesus is the only Savior. No one else can meet the blood grace requirement of redemption. All throughout his word, God makes it clear that the judgment on any kind of sin is death. That means that for a sinner to be redeemed, someone has to pay their redemption price, namely pay it with a death sacrifice. But not just any kind of sacrifice is going to do. In Matthew, Jesus himself makes it clear that money and power are not enough to redeem us. You can gain the whole world and still lose your soul. In Romans, Paul makes it clear that no number of good deeds or religious rites that you can complete are enough to buy your own freedom. You can't work off your imprisonment. In Hebrews, it is made clear that the blood of the purest animals is not enough to redeem us. And in Genesis, with Abraham and Isaac, God makes it absolutely clear from the beginning of the Bible, almost knowing how foolish human beings in history can be, that the precious human blood of a human child is not enough to redeem us. The entire revelation of the Bible makes this clear. Human trespassers, you and I, have absolutely nothing that we can do, use, attain, or sacrifice to redeem ourselves. Absolutely nothing. In fact, most of the world's problems today stem from a failure of human beings to see this troublesome reality about ourselves. Thankfully, Jesus is the incarnate Son with incarnate blood. He is fully man, meaning that his perfect holy life is able to redeem any trespassing human's life. Yet, he is also fully God, meaning that his divine being is of infinite worth. Thus, there is no limit to the number of human sinners that Jesus is capable of redeeming. Now, hypothetically, if the person of redemption, if Jesus were only God and not human, not fully human, he could not pay the physical blood requirement of death to free every trespasser who God had chosen. A spiritual God cannot die a true physical human death. And hypothetically, if the person of redemption, if Jesus were only human and not also fully God, it would be stretching it to say that he'd be able to pay the redemption price to free another human being, let alone nations and generations worth of human souls. Believe it or not, some insurance companies out there actually can and do quantify the monetary value of a human life. 
Uh, there was an insurance friend of mine back in Chicago. Of course, it had to be Chicago. And every part of your body, your organs, your fingers, your hands, your arms, all have a price tag associated with them in an insurance adjuster's eyes. Not only that, but every asset that you own is taken into their formulas and their calculations to decide how much you're worth and what your insurance premiums are going to be. Unfortunately for us, and I hate to break this news, it seems as though no human being has existed yet who is of infinite worth in terms of dollars in the eyes of a corporation. I'm sorry, guys. No hope for us. But thankfully, in the infinite riches of God's grace, he has willfully chosen to send his son, someone way more valuable than the entire earth, to taste death on a cross to save trespassers against him. He has willingly chose to redeem us. We see here that the Father may will redemption for us, yet it is the Son who works out redemption for us. You know, one of the saddest yet most memorable movies I've ever seen is Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. It's, I think, on one of the top 100 movies of all time. It's usually ranked in the top 10. And the 1993 film won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Um, I don't recommend the movie for younger viewers, but if you're a mature viewer or you're watching with a mature viewer and you haven't seen this before, uh, you should really go watch Schindler's List sometime. Uh, the film dramatically retells the true story of Oscar Schindler as portrayed by Liam Neeson with other great roles such as Qui-Gon Jinn. Now, in real life, Schindler was a German industrialist. Uh, he was a German industrialist during World War II who is credited with saving the lives of about 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. And some of the things he did to save lives are absolutely amazing. Few movies I've seen, few books I've read, few sermons I've listened to are as effective as this film is in conveying the intense emotional weight of redeeming a perishing people. In one of the final scene, scenes of the movie, the war is over. Schindler had saved over a thousand lives, but the man is suddenly overcome with intense shame, regret, and grief in his factory when other people seem to be celebrating. The movie ends with one of the best performances of Liam Neeson's career. Schindler looks around his factory, and this is what he says from the movie script. Why did I keep that car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two people. He would have given me two more, at least one. One more person, a person, Stern, for this. Schindler, at that point in the film, starts crying. And then he says, I could have got one more person, and I didn't. The people around Schindler immediately console him. You see, Oscar Schindler is just a man. He's just a man. He's a good man who saved over a thousand lives. But even a good man is not perfect. Even a good man has limits to what he can accomplish. A good man 
cannot save everyone. This is why we need, we desperately need a Redeemer who is more than a man. We are a perishing people, spiritually enslaved and imprisoned. If you are desperate for freedom, you need Jesus. If you are longing for forgiveness, you need the Son of God. Jesus pays a price more precious than all the world's wealth combined because your redemption is worth it to God. And Jesus does more than risks his life uh, for God. He does more than risk his life for you and me. He gives his life. He willfully, knowingly gives his life on the cross to redeem you and me. And Jesus is continuing to redeem people who put their hope in him every single day. If you've never done so before, I'd encourage you to set your hope in Jesus and never look back. You're never going to find a greater redeemer than Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just redeem trespassers. He also reveals the mystery of the Father's will. This is the second work of the Son in these verses. And we're going to go through these next two works a little quicker. Um, it's just redemption so important and so key just for understanding the scope of God's salvation in the Bible. So follow along with me as I read here Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, that is the Father's will there, according to his purpose, the Father's purpose, which he, the Father, set forth in Christ the Son as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ the Son, things in heaven and things on earth. So the big question here in this text is what is the mystery? What's the mystery here? Well, we can see from these verses that the Father has set the Son to make known or reveal to us the mystery of his will. So what is it? Well, verse 10 is the answer. The mystery of the Father's will that the Son has been set to reveal is that God has a plan. He has a plan for the fullness of time. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not much of a mystery. Of course, an eternal God has a plan for the fullness of time, but a plan for what? What is God's plan? Well, if we continue in verse 10, we're then told that all the periods of time in history exist for a reason. The fullness of time exists for this purpose, to unite all things in, in Christ in heaven and on earth. What this means is that the Son is the sum of all things. The Son is the sum of all things. This is the mystery of God's will that the Son himself is at work revealing. The Son is the sum of all things. In Greek, the word for unite in the ESV translation here is anakephalio. It literally means to sum up. The New American Standard Bible translates this as the summing up of all things in Christ. So what this does not mean, here's what this doesn't mean, is that all things are necessarily united in Christ in the same way. For example, a fallen angel is not united in Christ in the same way as a heavenly angel. A created object, like a star, is not united in Christ in the same way that a created being, like a human being, a man, a woman, a child, is united in Christ. 
A trespasser who feigns their redemption is not united in Christ in the same way as a trespasser who genuinely embraces their redemption. But what this does mean is that the sum of everything, the sum of all things in history, all beings in heaven, all beings in earth, all created things, all good things, even all bad things, absolutely everything has a purpose, and the sum of that purpose is directed to Christ. Now, this is where the mystery of God's will becomes a bit more mysterious again. God does not tell us the purpose of every individual thing or every individual event. Rather, God tells us the purpose of the sum of all things, and the Son of God is the sum of all things. That you can take to the bank. To help illustrate the Son's work to reveal the Father's will, I thought I'd show you this picture of some delicious homemade chili I made last week for our journey group. At least I hope it was delicious. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, Now, I've got a lot of different ingredients that I put into my own special chili recipe. I even have a not-so-secret ingredient I mix into my chili, which is lime juice. That's not something most people put in there. Uh, But with the right proportions of other ingredients, lime juice actually works surprisingly well in chili. However, if the ingredients are kind of out of proportion, too much lime juice, I've found, can really ruin the flavor. It can make it sour, and it can make it bitter, and that's just gross. But too little can keep you from tasting this sort of fresh, zesty flavor where that kind of makes you think, oh, what is that? That makes you want to get another bowl. Um, it took a lot of trial and error for me to get this recipe right, and it's kind of here in my head. But when it comes to my chili recipe, I can tell you the reason and I can tell you the purpose for just about every single ingredient that I put in it. I can even tell you why I'm making the chili and who I'm making the chili for. But no one else besides me can tell you those things or those that I tell. Um, No one else can tell you why I made the chili, for example. Uh, People can guess why. People can taste the chili. They can have their own opinions, positive or negative, about it, but only I get to tell others why I make it the way I do. Why? Because, well, I made the chili. The same is true with the will of God the Father. God doesn't tell us the reason and purpose behind every ingredient or decision that he makes in history. But through Jesus, he reveals that ultimately the Son is the sum of it all. That's a secret from God that we can know for sure. So no matter what is happening in the world, we can trust that the Son is going to be the sum of it all. So let's look now at the third work of the Son. We spent most of the time in this message looking at redemption, but these other two works are also important, and we don't want to miss them. So again, the first work is that the Son redeems trespassers. The second, the Son reveals the mystery. And the third is that the Son retrieves the reward. Now, I worked really closely with uh, Pastor Mike Bickley on this last one, and it's going to take a little work in the Greek for us to fully appreciate what's going on here. So, so bear with me. We'll get to the punchline, I hope. Uh, Ephesians uh, 1.11 says this. In him, so again, in Christ the Son, 
we have obtained an inheritance. Remember that word there. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is the Father's will. To be perfectly candid, verse 11 is hard to translate, especially in English. For instance, that five-word phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is actually just one word in Greek. That word is ekleirothemen, ekleirothemen. The root word has to do with casting lots, not, not really inheritance, such as Jonah casting lots with the sailors to discover who was responsible for the storm, or with the Roman soldiers casting lots to divide up Jesus' garments or possessions, or when the 11 remaining disciples cast lots in Acts to determine who will become the 12th apostle. The literal translation is close to this. In him our lot has been cast. In him our lot has been cast. Now, casting lots is not gambling. Usually when lots are cast, it's to select someone for something. If you're playing a role-playing game, you might roll a dice to randomly determine who gets the treasure or who gets to attack the monster. If two people get to the break room at the exact same time, but they discover there's only one soda left, they might play rock, paper, scissors to determine who gets it. Whoever wins the lot is the one selected, and usually when you're selected, you receive the reward. But in some cases, like with Jonah, it might be more of a punishment. Rather than explaining lot casting, most English Bible translations have opted for the translation with inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And for most, this is much easier to understand. From a big-picture interpretation, it gets to the same overall meaning articulated elsewhere in chapter 1. So what this really means is, is that uh, I don't want you to doubt your English Bible translations, and I definitely don't want you to go spend a bunch of money to try to teach yourself ancient dead languages right now. That's not the point of this message. Uh, the point here is that since I'm the preacher, I want to show you some cool things in the text that you might not get uh, normally just reading through your Bible. Our lot is cast can really be understood in two ways in the Greek. And theologically, both interpretations are true. This is classic Pauline writing in the New Testament. If you don't know this, Paul loves using words in the Greek that have two distinct meanings and in every case, both interpretations are theologically true. He loves doing that. So uh, Paul was really a master wordsmith. In this case, we have to make a decision. Does in him our lot is cast mean that we claim a reward? Or does in him our lot is cast mean that we become the reward? In other words, are we given the reward our lot's called, and so we're given the reward. Or are we ourselves the reward? Our lot is called, and we're the reward for calling that lot. Both interpretations work here, but Pastor Mike and I agree that the second interpretation is the one that we think is actually the stronger. Other ways we might translate this loosely would be, in Christ we have been retrieved as his reward. We have been one as his possession. We have become his inheritance. We have become his portioned prize. 
There's a New Testament scholar named Peter O'Brien, and he summarizes the meaning of verses 10 and 11 in this way. He writes, The Christ, who is at the center of God's plan to sum up all things in heaven and on earth, is also the one in whom we were claimed by God as his portion. And let me read that again. The Christ, who is at the center of God's plan to sum up all things in heaven and on earth, is also the one in whom we were claimed by God as his portion. All throughout the New Old Testament, the Hebrew people are told that they are the inheritance, the portion, the treasured possession that God has claimed for himself. And I don't think that it's an accident that Paul is alluding to this in the Old Testament. Except for here in Ephesians 1, he's not addressing a primarily Jewish Christian audience. We looked at that two sermons ago. He's primarily writing to Roman pagans in Asia Minor who have become Christians. So the ramifications of what he's saying here are actually incredible with just one word in the Greek. The son doesn't just retrieve the people of God in Israel as his reward. What Paul is saying is that the son retrieves people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation as his reward. And this is incredible. This means that no matter your ancestry, your culture, or where you are in the world, no one is beyond the reach of Jesus to be claimed as his treasured possession. And this is good news. Now, when I was working through the Greek here in Ephesians, I couldn't help but think of the scene from The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the fantasy story is about a hobbit, like a short halfling elf named Bilbo. And Bilbo travels far from the safety of his home in the Shire, across the dangerous Mirkwood, all the way to the lonely mountain, to do what? To reclaim a treasure that a dragon named Smog had stolen from dwarves. Bilbo had had no reason to leave the Shire and put himself at risk for dwarven strangers he had never met before. But there's some compassion in Bilbo for their misfortune, and there's some wanderlust in his own heart that ends up leading him on the adventure of a lifetime. Bilbo goes to great lengths to show true bravery and to claim the treasure from the dragon's hoard for the dwarves. Now, I don't want to spoil the story, so let that be a teaser if you haven't read it or seen it. Definitely read it much better than the movies. In many ways, though, our world is like a giant treasure trove. And it's a treasure trove that has been stolen from Eden and is now guarded by a fearsome dragon. Yet, the good news is that the Son of God is not afraid of dragons. We must not forget that Jesus is a slayer of dragons and the protector of lambs. He will leave the 99 to rescue the one. And he will go to any length necessary to retrieve us all as his treasured reward. So what is the end result of the Son's redeeming, revealing, and retrieving work? Well, let's look at Ephesians 1.12. It says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We are reminded here again of the Father's will. He has blessed us so that we can bless him. 
Just as in verse 6, which told us the result of the Father's will is the praise of his glorious grace, here in verse 12, the result of the Son's work is that all believers, but especially the first generation of believers, would praise the Father for his glory. So in light of all this, what's our response today as Christians? How should we respond to the Son's work? Well, I could end this message telling you to praise and bless the Father, but I think that you can probably get there on your own from reading verse 12. And that was kind of our application from last week. So I want to give us something fresh. How else should we respond to the Son's work? Well, first, set your hope in the one who paid it all. Set your hope in the one who paid it all. Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the Redeemer who paid the price for your entire ransom. Not one cent from your pardon from death is missing. If you've been setting your hope in yourself, or if you've been setting your hope in other people, you're going to end up frustrated and disappointed. Even a good man and a good woman has limits. So remember that none of us is righteous, not even one. Put your hope instead in the Son of Man who has no limits. Put your hope in the beloved Son of God who willingly gives his life to redeem your life. And secondly, treasure others like Christ treasures you. Treasure others like Christ treasures you. You may not always see yourself as a treasure. You may not always see other people as a treasure, but Jesus certainly does. The Son of God has gone to great lengths to retrieve you, not just as some trophy or achievement, but as a precious child of God. Quite literally, the Son has gone out to claim you as his inheritance so that he could share his inheritance with you and with others. If the Son of God treasures us in this way, how much more shall we treasure others in this way? So consider this week how you can self-sacrificially pursue and serve others as if they are Christ's own treasured possession. Life can often feel like walking into a dangerous dragon's den, but we must not lose our courage. Christ is like the knight who has already gone before us to do the hard work of redeeming trespassers, revealing God's will and ways, and retrieving the treasure. Thankfully, by God's ever-present power and grace, the forces of evil are held in check so that all we must do is follow in the footsteps of the Son by pointing others to our leader, Jesus, the one true Savior and King. With that, let's pray. Father God, thank you for revealing to us some of your infinite wisdom through the Bible and through your Son today. God, thank you for showing us that you have a plan. You have a plan to honor your Son through all things and all times and with all beings you've created. God, we are so grateful for the work that you have given the Son to do. Lord, when we couldn't redeem ourselves from the pit of our own trespasses, God, you sent your Son to redeem us in blood and grace. God, when we could not see your truth, you sent your Son to become the incarnate Word, revealing your truth, your will, and your ways to us. 
God, thank you for making us your treasured possession in Christ. By your Holy Spirit, help us to live worthy lives, treasuring others as Jesus has treasured us. In your Son's name, all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.